0: Uh, Here, we're going to talk about uh, what it means to be perfectly one, Uh, in other words, to be united in God. And we're going to talk about what are the characteristics, we're going to talk about how we come about doing that, because one of the prayers that we have for our church is to be united, not just between two churches, but just within every one of us, all, all of our relationships that we have. And we're to talk about what constitutes uh, this unity uh, from the prayer that Jesus prays. And you can tell it's very important for him that this is his final prayer, this unity prayer that he lifts up to God the Father for his disciples. Uh, so with that, uh, let's bow our heads one more time. Let's ask him for his help as we look into his word. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you, God, for this past weekend Uh, We've been learning much things and been convicted of many more, and we pray just even this morning, uh, we pray that you'll continue to reveal yourself through your word, and may we respond in prayer. May we respond in praise, and God, may your Holy Spirit continue to work in us even as we go home, Lord. Uh, Protect us. uh, We lift up all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So the message is called Perfectly One in God. And just by way of introduction, I want to share a story uh, that happened a long time ago, a true story. It's in the 13th century. It's a long time ago story. There's a German king, uh, Frederick II, and he conducted uh, this diabolical experiment. Uh, and he wanted to discover uh, what language children would naturally grow up to speak If no one had ever spoken to them, he wanted to see if there was some innate language that children, that people just had inside them. So he he prevented anyone speaking any kinds of language to these children and to take it a step further, he prohibited any adult or any caretaker to, to coddle them or to touch them, or have any interaction with these children to prevent any outside influence. And he was interested to see, would it be the the Hebrew language, the Greek, German, Latin? And he wanted to conduct this experiment, but to his great dismay, uh, his experiment was cut short. Because not after a long time, something tragically happened. Uh, Many of the babies uh, actually died before they even got to the age to speak because they had no affection, no intimacy, no touch, and Hence, it was a diabolical experiment. Uh, More in modern times, the New York Times uh, published this article. They did a scientific experiment, uh, not as diabolical as this, uh, but they observed newborn infants and their need for touch and intimacy. And they write, This research suggests that certain brain chemicals released by touch or others released in its absence may account for these infant's failure to thrive. So they're saying that the more touch, the more intimacy and affection that these babies have, that it increases their chances for survival and for, for them to be able to thrive in life. So for example, they say those infants who are massaged for even five minutes, three times a day, they gained weight 47% faster than others who are just in incubators. And as a, relo- uh, a result, they're released uh, from their incubators an average of six days earlier than those who did not receive any physical touch. And this is one of the reasons uh, why there are so many volunteers at hospitals, and their main job is to just coddle babies, just to hold babies and to, and to touch them and be affectionate with them. And they do that one after another. And it just goes to show that it helps them thrive in their environment. And it goes to show just how essential relationship and intimacy is for every single person, even since birth. A long time ago, somebody once said, relationship is the first thing that we're seeking coming into this world, and it's the last thing we're seeking going out of this world. That's how important, that's how innate this need for a relationship is. And so the worst thing, even in this life, that, that can happen to anyone is to take away any relationship that you might have, any interaction with others. Even today, solitary confinement is the worst punishment you can have in prison. If you track with me in the Bible, in, in, in the, Bible, the, the, the first murder that took place by, by Cain. What was his punishment? God said, you're going to be a fugitive and a wanderer forever. And so he was cast out, out of what? The community with God. Cast out of the garden, and he was just wandering from place to place, trying to replace that relationship, replace that communion he had with God and his own family. But he would never find such communion. And so even today, we see just how every single person, we are in need of intimacy, of community, of this unity, and is innate in us. And all of us, we are just like Cain. Because of our sinful nature, we are like fugitives, and we are wanderers. And maybe you can even relate in your own life how you wander from one community to the next, perhaps one failed relationship to the next. And we're continuously seeking to reestablish this once divine communion we've had with God. And we try to seek that through our families, our church, clubs, our communities. But at the end of the day, we must understand that there is a divine longing that God has placed in every single person and we can observe it since the day that they are born. I don't think it's coincidence that even at renewal that one of the most effective ways that we share the gospel with others is by way of community, right? Just a, a short show of hands, and you don't have to be embarrassed, because I think a lot of people raise their hands. Uh, how many of you guys got plugged into a church, either this one or originally at a church, through community, through someone else, through, through a fellowship? I'm, I'm so so And Just look, take a look around you. I would say more than 80% of even everyone in this room. And it just goes to show, just even biblically, that God uses that sense of longing and need to really accomplish his gospel purposes. And why is that? Why is there this essential need for community, this unity with one another? It's because we're made in the image of God, and God is essentially relationship. That's who he is, the trinity Three persons in one. By definition, God is relationship. So, logically speaking, if we are made in the image of God, every single person, then likewise we are made for relationship. Hence, it is not good for man to be alone. It's not just because it's sad and he's lonely. It's because something inherent about him is incomplete. Because you cannot have the Trinity separated. So it is essential for every one of us. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. This unity, this essential community that all of us are seeking. And we're going to look at this prayer to see how Jesus Christ himself, talks about how we can obtain this essential unity. So the headings for this morning, number one, is going to be the foundation for unity. The foundation for unity. And number two, uh, the stimulus for unity. Mm -hmm. The stimulus for unity. And finally, and the final point will be considerably shorter uh, by way of application, the effects produced by unity. The producing effects. So number one, foundation, the stimulus, and finally, the the producing effects. Okay, so we're going to go through uh, these three points. So the first point, the foundation for being perfectly one by uh, having this unity. Well, if we take a quick glance at this prayer, uh, it's divided into three parts. Verses one through five is Jesus' prayer between him and God and for himself. Verses 6 through 19 is his prayer for his disciples and his believers. And verses 20 through 26 is for the rest of the world who has yet to believe in the gospel. So he divides his view of the world into these different parts. And it gives us an inside view of how Jesus sees every single person. And he makes two distinctions. In Jesus' eyes, every single person, they are either believers, disciples, followers of Christ, and everyone else, the rest of the world, are those who have yet to believe in Christ. That's how he sees people, and that's how he groups people. And that phenomenon happens with all of us, right? Every single person, you associate them, some form or another, by their ethnicity, their job, their career, their their relationships, right? But how does Jesus look at every single person? Do they believe in the gospel or not? And once you establish this condition, how does Jesus divide the people? It gives us tremendous insight of how we are to see people because we see that there is certain conditions that we continually put upon ourselves and others to group people in various ways, Eagles fans, Patriots fans, or people who love this or don't. And I could take anything, and it will create different categories, create divisions of people. For example, if I say the word uh, cilantro, right? Right now, I created two groups of people, those who love cilantro and those, like my wife, who hate cilantro, But do you see how that phenomenon happens, right? You take a condition, you present it, it creates two groups of people. That's how division works. How does Jesus divide people? Do they know the gospel or have they yet to believe in the gospel? And the condition, Jesus' cilantro, that dividing condition is, do they believe in the truth of God's word? That's his dividing factor that determines if you are in this category or that category. and that itself, we're going to see that's the foundation for the unity that we are to have with one another. The truth of God's word is the foundation for unity. Examine with me in our passage. Look at verse 6. Jesus prays. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And here we go. They have kept what? Your word. Verse 7. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed you sent me. Quick, Quickly to verse 14, he continues, I have given them a, your word, and the world, the other category, has hated them. Why? Because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. And I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, and therefore sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into their world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Just how many times does that concept of God's word and God's truth come into play here to unite the believers? It is by nature that they, by them believing in God's word that unites them, and God's word is continually going to sustain them to be united. Like I mentioned with that cilantro example, there are many ways that the world is divided today. Many divisions. And how are they divided? By a lot of these lowercase truths. Truths. Certain ideas, certain conditions, political stances, ethnicities, certain ways of looking at life. And you take those things, you present them, and you create different groups of people, don't we? You're either a right-wing political person, you're a left-wing, you believe in this as the answer for the world's problems, or you don't. And so you take all of these truths, take sports, cultural backgrounds, and so forth. So depending on what you're operating on, that's how you're going to divide up all the people in your life. But you have to understand in this world, when we take those truths, lowercase t, we are establishing this mini unity with those who are like us. But at the same time, what's happening? We are creating division. We are demonizing the other group. The more that we find ourselves united with somebody over these lowercase truths, at the same time, we are making divisions with others and we are demonizing. That's often cases happen, right? Right? Oh, those left-wings or right-wing guys, they don't really know the answer to this nation's problems. Or or those Patriots fans, they don't know the power of Rocky and the underdog mentality, right? We, by nature, by being united as one team, demonize the other team. It's a natural phenomenon. And so it's a very difficult paradox that we're in. We might find this sub-unity, but at the same time, it creates division from one political party to the next, from one ethnicity to the next. But all the while, the world knows that this unity concept is something that we have to strive for, which is why throughout time and time again, we're trying to establish something, some kind of condition that's going to unite everyone. We have the Olympics, right? Something that's going to unite everyone in light of their history. In this nation, we have nationalism. We have whatever we can come up with to try to unite people. That's a million-dollar question. How can we unite not only this nation, this world, but even people in our midst? And we can try many things. We can try all of these lowercase truths. We can even try to be kind. Maybe the language of love and, and being civil towards one another. And we can try to work up whatever strength and energy we have, that even though we have our differences, I'm still going to be a, a good neighbor to you, still respect you and be kind to you. But here what Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor in the, in the 60s, he writes. He says, so what's the cure? In light of relational tension and ethnic superiority, if the goal is unity with one another, what's the cure? How can this be obtained? It's not enough just to appeal to to goodwill or kindness or friendliness regarding our pride over others. In fact, it can be insulting if our external actions and words can be kind, but deep down there is a belief that you are better than the other person. It is not enough just to appeal for goodwill and kindness and friendliness. It simply does not work and it will not work. In fact, it has never worked throughout all history. He's saying there's nothing in this world that can unite us, not in the way that God has created us to be united by fellowship with him. So that's the question we need to present. What's the basis for our unity here in our church? And if you lived long enough, you're going to know that it doesn't take much experience to know that your goodwill towards your spouse or your goodwill towards your children or your roommates, it's just not enough. You don't have enough kindness or goodwill to last a day. How can we talk about this kindness and goodwill establishing unity? What's going to be the basis and, you know, we can sit here, we can agree at the idea of unity. Yes, we want our church to be united. Yes, I want our family to be one. And we love that idea, and we sing about it, and we put that forth. But it's very different when in actuality, we have to live out this unity. Hear what uh, 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 this um, the writer, um, uh, I read from this book, a long book uh, by um, uh, Fodor Dostovsky, it's by Brother Karamov, and here's what he says, he says, I love mankind, but I am amazed at myself. The more I love mankind in general, the less I love people in particular, that is, individually, as separate persons, In my dreams, I often go so far to think passionately of serving mankind, and it may be that I really would have gone even to the cross for people if it were somehow suddenly necessary, and yet I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone even for two days. That's how long our retreat was, surprisingly. (laughs) This I know from experience. As, someone, as soon as someone is there close to me, his personality oppresses my self-esteem and restricts my freedom. In 24 hours, I can begin to hate even the best of men. One, because he takes too long eating his dinner. Another, because he has a cold and keeps blowing his nose. I become the enemy of people the moment they touch me. It's very insightful, right? We love the idea of loving others. We love and we agree and say yes and amen. We need to be united, but as soon as somebody gets near enough to touch you, we can even hate the best of men, the way that she blows her nose. Why does she have to sneeze like that? I'm not speaking of anyone in particular. We can agree in theory But the question is, what's going to actually help us be united in this divine truth? And we can go all the rest of our lives trying to find this. Perhaps common interests, shared experiences, ethnic backgrounds, but all of that is going to fail. And that's what all of mankind has been trying to do for all of history. If you look at all the greatest philosophers and the greatest thinkers of all mankind, that's what they're seeking, right? This ultimate truth, the capital T truth. What is it going to be that transcends us and unites all of mankind? There is an Austrian philosopher by the name of Ludwig Wittgenstein. And I have a picture of him. He looks like a convict, but he's actually very brilliant here. Uh, He worked primarily in in logic, the philosophy of mathematics, uh, the philosophy of the mind and language. And his teacher, Bertrand Russell, who himself was a a greatly renowned philosopher, he said, Wittgenstein was the most perfect example I've ever known of a genius. He was passionate, profound, intense, and dominating. Wittgenstein, in 1921, he wrote this small uh, uh, treatise full of truths and propositions. He just wrote number one, truth, number two, truth, number three. He just goes on and on listing these profound truths. And the way that he presented this treatise was, was like a ladder. He said every truth that he comes upon is like a rung on the ladder. And you can use just the soundness of one truth, step on that truth to go to the next. And then you can use that truth to go to the next. And that's what life is about. You go from one truth that we find in this world and we establish ourselves and we go to the next. And eventually you keep on climbing and you will eventually obtain this divine truth, this ultimate truth. The Buddhists, they call that enlightenment. But you know what he writes at the end of that treatise? He writes, about which we cannot speak We must be silent. About which we cannot speak, we must be silent. what he is saying there is, even though you might think you reached at the top of the ladder and you have this divine perspective on what this capital T truth is that's going to unite all of us, you're going to realize that you can never get there. You can never get there because by nature, each truth that you find in this world, by nature, it is man. It is human truth. And because by nature, we are just feeble mankind, we will never have this God-like view of what's going to unite us. What he's saying is we can't climb up to heaven. That's what he's saying. There is no perspective that we can create that's going to unite man. Kind another illustration is the man who's drowning in the ocean and he's trying to get onto the ship and he's trying to survive and he's trying to trying to make it, and no matter how hard he tries and pushes off the ground beneath him, he keeps falling deeper and deeper. Unless somebody from atop throws a life savior and brings you in. And that's what he's saying on this ladder. So we can try you can try to use all of your kindness your good will maybe your view of marriage or your responsibilities of a parent or all the things that this nation and our society presents and try to use that as our truth and try to climb and obtain this unity within our families and our church but it's going to fail because it's like we're in the ocean and we keep trying and trying unless god himself Reveals this capital T truth. Lloyd-Jones, he finishes his quote that I gave earlier, saying kindness is not going to work. And he says, but what does work is when our eyes are open to the sobering reality of ourselves, but also the magnificent reality of the redemption we have in Jesus Christ. No, there is only one way. It is Christ's way. He tells us the truth about ourselves. He makes us face ourselves, face to face with him. I see my utter worthlessness, my wretchedness, my woe. And when I look into the face of Christ, I have nothing to boast about. He makes me see the truth about myself. And you will never get unity amongst men until they see the truth about themselves. He brings us down together to the dust. Then he shows us that we all need the same grace the same mercy, same love, and that is Christ's way of doing it, of bringing people together. He makes us realize the truth that you and I, we are at the same playing ground No matter what moral lifestyle you can come up with, no matter how good of a worker or a parent or a spouse you are, he levels the playing ground. And we are all in need of the same grace, same mercy, and same love. And that truth is going to be what unites people, the truth of God. And that's what Jesus is saying in verse 3. What is eternal life? And he says, eternal life is believing in the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. And so that's the foundation of our unity in this church. Not because we're similar in any way, not because we have shared interests, even the eagles, there are many people whom I won't name in this church that do not like the eagles. They like the patriots. You're going to find some kind of division. What's the great equalizer? the truth of God, the truth of the gospel, and let us establish our unity based upon that truth. Amen? On my second point, the stimulus for being united. What is going to be the stimulus to bring us together? Now, as I mentioned, as I describe this concept, I don't think anyone in this room, we're not going to push back at this, right? We're all in agreement that we can't come up with anything intellectual, anything profound that's going to unite people other than God's truth, right? But as I said, we can be fully in agreement with our mind, and we can agree that all of us need relationship and community. We've seen people come to our church. Why do they come? Because they're seeking relationship and community. We observed it with our own eyes. We can see it in ourselves. But the problem is, If we as a church, we are in agreement with this, then how come we don't see such oneness with one another? We all agree upon this, right? We believe this is God's word. This is what Jesus is saying. But how come in actuality we don't see such such intimacy with one another? Aren't we based upon the truth of God? How come for many of us, even in this church, the farthest extent that we'll go with, uh, with another person in this church is by simply being kind, maybe on a Sunday afternoon, saying some nice words to one another, encouraging them, perhaps serving here and there, but never to the point of that oneness that Jesus has with the Father and the Holy Spirit. What's the difference? What's making this gap? It seems like supposedly our oneness that we have in our church, it seems so shallow. And in any given church, that's the sad reality. What they confess with their mouths are different in the actual lives that they live. And it goes to show that we need something more than just agreeing upon this. We need something to stimulate this unity. And let me describe it, how this can happen. If you ever observe two people coming together, Say that they meet for the first time, they introduce themselves. Or you think about your community group as it first started out, right? You're starting to kind of get to know one another, see each person's stories. There's going to be various stages in a relationship. There's an initial greeting, introduction, and after time you share some, some civil conversation, common interests, certain thoughts on various things. But when is it going to actually go into that next level? of relationship? What's going to be that breaking point? And if you think about it, it's when one person becomes vulnerable, isn't it? When one person becomes vulnerable and opens himself up, exposes himself, and reveals the truth of who that person is, what he actually feels, and what he thinks, the things that are on his heart, he made himself vulnerable, and the other person can take that act, and he can dismiss it, he can break your heart, or in return, he can be vulnerable in return and say, you know what? This is who I am. And as he's vulnerable, as he exposes himself, we see this cycle coming apart. But until that one person takes that first step and opens up and reveals the truth of who that person is, it's never going to get to that intimacy. And any relationship, this is how it works, right? A lot of the times when I counseled college students, you know, between man and girl, man and girl, I guess boy and girl, you know what that breaking point is when they start to be infatuated with each other? As soon as they have that first pillow talk at midnight over the phone and they expose themselves, this is who I am, the other person, they reciprocate that, this is who I am, and they develop a bond. That happens in every relationship, in our community groups, when that first person takes that step of vulnerability. But it's scary, isn't it? It's very scary. It's very risky because there is the possibility that that person, he can dismiss you, ignore you, even worse, break your heart. There's an American psychologist by the name of Joyce Brothers. She was very well known. Uh, They say she actually uh, um, um, started the whole Oprah Winfrey and Ellen movement, the talk show kind of helping with people in the mid-50s. And she's very insightful. She says, love comes... When manipulation stops, when you think more about the other person than about his or her reactions to you, and when you dare to reveal yourself fully, when you dare to be vulnerable, it got cut off. And that's when true relationship works, she writes. Do you see what she's saying? She's even observing that in any relationship, the point that it goes from manipulation to of being so consumed with what others think about you to genuinely loving the person is when you open yourself up. Love begins when you think about that person versus what he or she thinks about you. But you and I know that's very hard. It's very difficult. It's near impossible. Why? Because when you are vulnerable, you have to expose who you are, and you have to remove all these fig leaves that we try to, try, to put, uh, try to cover ourselves with and try to present ourselves in a certain light, perhaps even at church, maybe your winsome personality, your success, your money, your friends, and relationship. And that's terrifying for people to know what's deeply down inside I'll finish with one more quote just recently. Sherilyn Kenyon, a New York Times best-selling author. She writes, when you love someone, truly love them, you lay your heart open to them. You give them a part of yourself that you give no one else, and you let them inside a part of you that only they can hurt. You literally hand them the razor with a map of where to cut deeply and most painfully on your heart and soul. And when they do strike, it's a crippling life having your heart carved out. It's because we're afraid of that. Why we're so afraid to open our hearts to one another. But you see until this happens, we'll never achieve this union, this unity with one another the way that God intends us to. And living in the world today, no one wants to do that, right? We can hide behind social media social media. We can hide over email. We can hide over just nonchalant conversations, but to truly open our hearts up to another person is terrifying. I mean, even a community group, you cannot possibly think that no one has just nothing to say. There are thoughts going in. People are thinking. They have true emotions, feeling They're not robots. But what is it? We're afraid to give you that razor and the map of where it's going to hurt most saying, you know what, I'm really struggling here. You know what, I don't know if God exists. You know what, it's not worth it anymore. How scary is it to say that? Because you're revealing who you are truly inside. But as soon as somebody does that, I'm very curious to see if someone says, you know what, I know what you mean. I've been there too. Do you see how this unity starts? Until we're willing to become vulnerable, we will never create this union with one another. We see it in our community group. We see it in our families, right? Perhaps between you and your spouse, you guys are a great team, but when was the last time you opened your heart and gave her the map where it hurts most? When was the last time you did that with your roommate or your true friends? Is it superficial? We're afraid of exposing the ugliness we might have inside, and we're going to need something to break that, something to break this vicious cycle of us just covering ourselves up with this fig leaves. And what is that truth? It goes back to the truth, right? It goes back us to thinking about what's the content of the truth that jesus here is talking about and we think about the content, he defines it he says the truth is eternal life the fact that god himself sent his one and only son jesus christ for our sins that's the truth that's going to start to break this cycle and to open our hearts up to one another That's the capital T truth. So let's think about what it means, the content of this truth, that's going to be the stimulus for us to do that here in our community. You know, and to explain this, a lot of us, we think that the goal of Christian life is to know God, right? And there's truth to that. To know God deeper, we sang that. And let me just kind of respond to that by this story in the Gospels. There's a man by the name of Zacchaeus. And he, it's a very, very much beloved story of the gospel. And it's a story about this tax collector. And we are told that he was very small in stature. And because of his height, he wasn't able to see Jesus in the midst of the crowds. Now, not only was G, uh, Zacchaeus a tax collector, but he was a chief tax collector, meaning he was filthy rich. And tax collectors back then to the Jewish people, they were considered traitors because they betrayed their own Jewish kin and extorted money from them and gave them to the Roman officials and they pocketed any amount that they wanted to. And now the gospel writer, look, he explicitly writes two things about Zacchaeus. Number one, that he was small in stature and he was a chief tax collector. And those are the two barriers that's preventing Zacchaeus to get to know Jesus more he was too short to look over the crowds to see Jesus even when he tried to squeeze in through the people the people knowing who he was they pushed them outside so what does he do he runs ahead of the crowd he climbs up a sycamore tree so he can get a good look at Jesus and we see that as the crowd starts to pass by, that Jesus Himself, He comes up to the sycamore tree and He looks up and says, "Zacchaeus, I'm staying at your house today." And that's so profound. Do you know why? Because Jesus, He knows Zacchaeus' name. He invites Himself into Zacchaeus' life, and that tells us that the gospel is not necessarily about us knowing God, but God who already knows you. God has known you by name, and he invites himself into your life. Zacchaeus, I'm staying with you today. And the reason why we have this stalemate in relationship is because we're afraid of being known. But we see here that the truth of the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ, he knows you deeply, still knowing you, and he invites himself into your life. And it's not about us trying to know the other person, trying to know God on our own strength, but to really confess the fact that Jesus, he's known us inside and out. And that's the truth of the gospel because Jesus, the son of God, he took that first step of vulnerability when he took on flesh and he was born in a manger, being physically, emotionally vulnerable, the most vulnerable that anyone can be, a baby. Him not knowing sickness, he experienced betrayal, depression, and he undergoes all of that in his life. He keeps taking these steps of vulnerability for us. He undergoes the wrath of God that was initially meant to come down upon us. And now the question is why? Why would Jesus do that? Because he's taking that first step. He's taking that first step of vulnerability into our lives. And when he does that, he doesn't just simply take the risk of being hurt by us, he knows that he's going to be hurt, hurt to the point of death on the cross knowing fully well what was going to happen, knowing fully of all the evil and malice of our hearts, he still comes and he still takes that first step. And now he says, I've known you for all eternity. I'm going to invite myself into your life. And when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ in response to him, knowing us, and our security is in that, that can stimulate us. To be open to others to open ourselves up to others knowing that at the end of the day there is someone who knows you deeply and loves you deeply and he takes that step to get to know us and that's jesus christ and if that's going to be our focus yes even though no one is taking the first step jesus took that first step and we can take that first step of loving and serving and opening ourselves to up to others. There's an old hymn about this. It says, blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. He takes that first step, and we respond in taking our steps to another. That's the stimulus. And finally, and just by way of application, uh, what are the effects produced by us being united in this fashion based upon the truth of God and allowing Jesus to be the stimulus to allow us to do that? Let's look at the final verses of this passage at verse 15. Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And he says, As you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. And in verse 20, we see that he wants us to be in this world. And what's the effect? so that others may come to believe the truth of the gospel, and as a result, others become one with us in God. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our church, when we first started Renewal Mainline, that was the conviction that brought us out, to be an outward church, to be a missional church. Instead of being comfortable and inward, we want to live for the sake of others, a true church that lives for its non-members. That's what we based this church on, and we see that if we are united in the way that God prescribes for us, based upon the truth of God's word, what's the effect that's produced? others will come to know they will know that they were meant to have their relationship with God when others see us forgiving one another because God forgave us through the gospel when others see us loving the unlovable within our church because we know that we were unlovable through Christ perhaps when others people see us that we're united not by a common interest over food or hobbies or similar life stages, but it's Christ himself that unites us, regardless of our differences. And it's the same gospel principles, the truth, that's going to continually unite us and bring us back, back to the truth of what's going to unite this church. I'm going to end with this, uh, um, this video that I saw just a couple of weeks ago, and I think it really exemplifies uh, what Jesus here is talking about. And the story is about a Muslim uh, uh, um, journalist, and he's interviewing this widow. uh, This widow, and she was the wife of a Christian man uh, who was the gatekeeper of a church, an Alexandria church. And there was a suicide bomber who came in uh, to try to destroy the building, and he sacrificed himself. And he himself uh, was died. Uh, was killed in return this happened on palm sunday uh, last year but he ended up saving countless lives and i don't want to just show this just to just show the emotions that she's having but i want us to observe a couple of things number one look at the people that are with her this widow this unity she has and number two think how she's processing this see how she's allowing the truth of the gospel to determine what she's going to say and what's going to put herself together. She's not searching for various things. She's not trying to overcome this with her kindness. She's desperately holding on to the truth of the gospel that you and I know. And what's the result of that? You look at that Muslim journalist, and there's times when he's just speechless. And I want you to see the result of what happens if we, just like that, Based upon, base our church upon the truth of the gospel, and we desperately hold on to this church and see what the effects are. So let's let's see this
1: video. <laughs> يفكروا صدقيني لأن هم لو فكروا إحنا ما بنعمل لهمش أي حاجة صدقيني ما بنعمل لهمش حاجة، فكروا تاني، فكروا أنتم بتعملوا ده صح ولا غلط، وربنا يسامحكم، وإحنا مسامحينكم بأمانة، بقولها سامحكم سدّيني، لأن تحدّثوا لي أبو ولادي في مكان وكنت أتمنى العمر كله صدقيني بأمانة، يعني أنا عمري أنا بفتخر بي وبتمنى أكون أنا جنبه يا منش، وأشكرك يا حبيبتي. أقباط مصر مصنوعين من فلاز أقباط مصر مئات السنين بيتحملوا كوارث ومصايب كتيرة القبط المصري يعشق تراب بلده القبط المصري يتحمل كل شيء عشان وطنه وإيه وم- و- 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 كمية التسامح اللي عندكم دي لو أعداءكم يعرفوا قد أنتم متسامحين بجد ما كانش حد يصدق ده أنا لو أبويا والله ما أقول كده أبدا الناس دي عندها كمية تسامح عن حق عن عقيدة دول بني أدمين والله مصنوعين من مادة تانية الله يرحمه عم سيم، بطل وشهيد ومثل أعلى للي قاعد كل واحد في البلد دي يقولك هي البلد دي ايه والبلد دي ماشيه ازاي البلد دي ماشيه كده بلد دي ماشيه بالصبر بالجلد بالتحمل بالست العظيمة دي بالعيال اللي خلف ما ماتش درباهم وعمل رجاله رجال
0: Do you see how she's holding on to truth, right? Truths of the gospel. Right? I wish I was there with my husband. May God forgive you. I forgive you. She's holding on to the truths with her fellow brothers and sisters. And what's the result? These people have so much forgiveness. How great is this forgiveness that you have? Did you see when he says, this is their faith and religious conviction. It's the truth that they're holding on to. These people are made of a different substance. Do you see how Jesus' prayers occurs? People are united by the truth of the gospel Together. And when things are difficult in our church and even in your life, when you are desperately holding on to truth, you look at your life and it's not going the way that you're thinking it should, but you still hold on to God's truth and you still hold on to hope and you're still trying to be faithful. And when people see that, they see they're made from a different substance. I truly believe that we don't have to hide or brush away any of the difficulties, how hard Christian life is for any of us, because that's the means through which that we can show others we are made of a different substance, the substance of God's truth, that Christ forgave us, we can forgive others. Christ loved us, we can love others. Christ sacrificed for us, we can sacrifice for others. That's the truth of the gospel in our lives. And if we do, I have no doubt that others will come to see they're made of a different substance. And that'll be our unity, amen? Let's pray.